A few moments ago, we were singing the words of that great hymn by George Jackson. I want, dear Lord, a soul on fire for thee, a soul baptized with heavenly energy. And I'm sure tonight that if you're a believer and you're walking with God and you're reading your Bible and you look at the world around us and all of its need and be look at our society and we look at our land and we think of those who do not know the Savior. I'm sure tonight that many of you can make that your prayer. I want, dear Lord, a soul on fire for thee, a soul on fire for God. And yet if we're honest tonight, we have to ask the question, how many Christians tonight do we meet day by day who truly are on fire for God. It used to be said of old saints who were passionate in prayer, burdened for the glory of God, concerned about a lost world, and gave themselves completely to the Lord. It would often be said of such individuals who held nothing back. There's a man, or there's a woman, or there's a young person, and they're on fire for God. They've got a soul on fire for God. But how many Christians in 2000 and 22 could be described as being on fire for God. And then as I look at my own life as well, how many preachers have the fire of God in their souls? In this damn generation, how many men are marked out as being men that are on fire for God? We've got many preachers, many pastors, many good theologians and good Bible teachers, but I speak tonight to my own heart, how many preachers are on fire for God in these days that we're living in, these closing days of time, whenever we need the fire of God more than ever. And yet it seems that in this country that we live in, the embers are sadly and tragically burning low. William Booth, the great founder of the Salvation Army, recognized this great need. As he wrote that great hymn, Now Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire, send the fire. He said in that hymn, "'Tis fire we want, for fire we plead. Send the fire, send the fire. The fire will meet our every need. Send the fire, send the fire. For strength to ever do the right. For grace to conquer in the fight. For power to walk the world in white. Send the fire, send the fire. This day and age that we're living in in the church that mirrors, I believe, in many respects, the Laodiceans, that Laodicean spirit, neither hot nor cold, but somewhere in between lukewarmness. It's rare nowadays to find individuals, especially collectively, who are on fire for the Lord. You remember Isaac, whenever Abraham was taking him up to Mount Moriah, and God had called him to put Isaac on the altar and offer him there for a burnt offering. You remember Isaac asked that question in Genesis 22 and verse number 7, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Father, we've got the fire and we've got the wood to make an altar. But Father, we need a lamb. And that lamb, of course, speaks of the Savior. And you know, tonight we could say in a very real sense, we have got the wood. We've got all of the equipment that we need in the church. We have got men and women who are born again. We've got beautiful buildings to meet in. We've got access to the throne of grace. We've got media systems and we've got comfortable churches and we've got the ability to go out. There's plenty of wood. And we've also got the gospel of the Lamb, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But maybe the difference today is we've got the wood 
And we've got the lamb, praise God, but where is the fire? Where is that thing that makes the difference? That dynamic that makes it all come alive and has influence in our world and in our society. It's the fire that we need. The fire makes all the difference. You think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's built the altar. He's divided the bullock. He's put it on the altar. And he called down fire from heaven, having poured barrel after barrel of water over that sacrifice. And if there had been no fire at Mount Carmel, it simply would have been an embarrassing washout. But praise God, the fire fell. And then after the fire fell, the people fell. And then after the people fell, praise God, the rain fell. And oh, for the floods in a thirsty land. Oh, for a mighty revival. I'm sure tonight there are many here and you long for such a move of God in our day. A day whenever the fire of God will fall. The power of God be let loose. And our lives touched by the power of God. And then the community falling down and crying out, what must we do? And then the rain falling from heaven and saturating this land of ours that so desperately needs a move of the Spirit of God. Fire is visible. Fire certainly is useful. Fire is powerful. Fire is also spreadable. But the challenge tonight to our hearts is, are we ignitable? The early church had very little but they had a message that they believed. They had a commission to fulfill. And then ultimately they experienced the fire, the fire of God. You remember how they were gathered together in that upper room and the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were with one accord in one place. And as they were praying, the Spirit of God came upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And whenever they were set on fire, just a handful of them in the upper room, despised and rejected like the Savior who had gone before, but whenever they were touched with this heavenly fire, they went out and that fire began to spread radically and dynamically throughout Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then on to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it was the fire of God that made the difference. Men and women with souls on fire for God. And if there's one man in the Bible that we could describe as being a man with a soul on fire for God, it was John the Baptist. This unusual preacher, nothing attractive about him, nothing attractive about his mannerisms, nothing attractive about his social skills, nothing attractive about his appearance. He was clothed with a, a leathern girdle and camel's hair and he had his his pulpit in the wilderness, his meat was locusts and wild honey. His message was just simply preaching Christ to a lost generation. And yet God used him mightily. What a ministry, a short ministry, just a matter of months that John had. And yet it was a Christ-centered ministry that turned many to the Savior. And the Son of God here in John 5 summarizes his ministry with this simple statement John was a burning and a shining light. We might say he had a soul on fire for God. And as we look for a few moments tonight at the ministry again of John the Baptist, I'm sure we've considered it before. I think there are five realities in his life. Five realities in the life of John the Baptist that show us how and why he had a soul on fire for God. If you turn back for a few moments to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, 
I think we've got the first reality of a soul on fire for God, and that is the reality of the practice of separation in the life of John the Baptist, the reality of the practice of separation. John was a man who believed in biblical separation unto God. Not only did he believe it, but he also practiced it. And that separation began right there from his mother's womb. Luke chapter 1, verse number 15. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. There were many religious people in the days of John the Baptist, and they certainly did not count John the Baptist to be great. But John the Baptist was great in the sight of the Lord. And friends, tonight, all that we are in the sight of God is what really matters. Many today are looking for favor with men and influence with men and the smile of men and the approval of men. And sadly, many even believers are, are wanting the approval of men. And it's good to have influence with men. It's good to have a, a testimony before men. But the vital thing is, what are we in the sight of God? Here was a man, and God could declare, this man is great in my sight. In fact, the Savior said, among them that are born of woman, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. The Savior said he was greater than all the prophets. Here was a man that Jesus Christ commended as being great in the sight of the Lord. And I believe his greatness was directly linked to the fact that here is a man separated unto the Lord. Even from his mother's womb, it says in verse 15, Luke 1, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And I always believe that that's good practice. To stay away from those things. Because the Bible is very clear that wine is a mocker. And strong drink is raging. And here was a man who was set apart from his mother's womb. Separated from those things. And we believe as well with that comes the reality. That John the Baptist like Samuel and like Samson was a Nazarite. A man set apart from the mother's womb. And these instructions were carefully given to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now this boy is going to be sanctified, set apart, if you like, meat for the master's use. He's not going to touch wine. He's not going to touch strong drink. He's a man that I've set apart for a sacred use and for a, a sacred purpose. And we could look like Look at men like John the Baptist or Samuel or Samson, these men that were Nazarites. And we can say, well, that was okay for them. They had a very distinct role to play, a very special ministry, a sacred ministry. But I believe that this principle and this practice of separation is something for every Christian. And I'm speaking now in practical terms. It's one thing to belong to a, a, don, a denomination that's outside of the ecumenical movement and outside of the charismatic movement. That's important. But it's much more important for us to understand that whenever the Lord saves us, He's calling us out. That's what the word church means. Ecclesia called out. And every born-again believer is sanctified and set apart 
and not only set apart from, but separated unto. Remember the Apostle Paul said, I am separated unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wrote to the church at Corinth, which sadly was a church that had begun flirting with the world again, allowing things into their lives that the Lord didn't want for them, and allowing things into their church. And the Lord reminds them, listen, come out from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you. And the Lord promised them that he would bless them in a special way if they separated themselves unto him. We'll never have a soul on fire for God unless we are separated unto the Lord. The fact that John the Baptist was separated makes the fact of him having a soul and fire for God possible. Let's endeavor to be different from this world. Let's endeavor to be like our Savior, like Christ himself, and let's follow him, and let's endeavor to be faithful to him and separated unto him and walk closely with him, walking in his footsteps. It's the only way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust him and obey him and to follow on to know the Lord. The reality of the practice of separation in John's life led him, I believe, in part to having a soul on fire for God. Then there's another thing, and that's the reality of the power of the Spirit in his life. And again, you have that in Luke chapter 1, verse number 15. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now, I believe that's something unique to John the Baptist, not the fact that he was filled with the Holy Ghost, because many, many people in Old Testament story and history, and in the New Testament as well, and right down through church history, and individuals here tonight living a Spirit-filled life. But the unique thing about John the Baptist was he was filled with the Holy Ghost, from his mother's womb. And it's very difficult tonight for us to explain that or to understand that. And all sorts of theories have been propagated and given out about how and why John was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. But the Bible tells us he was. But the important thing was, it says he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, whenever he commenced his earthly ministry in Mark, Matthew chapter 3, he said to the children of Israel, There cometh one after me who is mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. John believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John not only preached it, but he had that experience and that reality in his life. His whole ministry, his whole testimony, his whole lifestyle, his whole character indicated here's a man that is clearly led by the Spirit of God and filled by the Spirit of God. And you can read on in John's Gospel, the audience that the Lord gave to his disciples there in the upper room, and he spoke so much about the comfort of the Holy Ghost and what he would do whenever he came. And one of the cardinal characteristics of the Spirit of God is to uplift and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all that John the Baptist's ministry was about. Uplifting Christ. He was a man filled 
with the Spirit of God. And the infilling and the fullness of the Spirit is something for every Christian, whether you're a young Christian or an older Christian, whether you're involved in public ministry or leadership or whatever it might be, or whether you're quietly living your Christian life amongst your friends and your family and your neighbors, the fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life is something for every Christian. Ephesians chapter 5 and 18 says, Be not drunk with wine or in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You get a man that's full of wine and full of alcohol. It controls him. It dominates him. Sometimes it, it gets such a grip on him that it dominates his life completely. And every day is a life of giving over to being filled with wine and filled with alcohol. It maybe affects his speech. It affects his conduct. It affects his walk. It affects his behavior. And Paul says that we're not to be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit of God. Something that should dominate our lives. Something that can control our speech, control our mannerisms, our conduct, our walk, our activity, our very desires, how we see things. To be filled with the Spirit of God means to be controlled and governed and dominated and empowered by the Holy Ghost in order to uplift and magnify and exalt the person of Jesus Christ. John knew the reality of the power of the Spirit in his life. And we can never live the Christian life in the flesh. You know that well. We need the Spirit of God to enable us to do that. And even before the early church went out to fulfill the Great Commission, the Lord said, now before you go out, he says, I want you to tarry. I want you to wait. Linger in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He said in Acts chapter 1, before you go out to be witnesses, he says, you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And when the death Pentecost was fully come, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And one of the emblems of the Spirit of God in their lives was power. The early church knew it. You can read down through church history, times whenever the Spirit of God moved in the locality. And very often it began with a church. It might have been a very small church, a very insignificant group of believers. But yet they were burdened and they loved the Lord and they wanted to serve Him and see something happen. And whenever they were filled and they got the fire, that sacred flame began to spread. I wonder tonight if we're honest, has the fire almost gone out completely in this land of ours? It seems that the fire is almost gone. We need to pray, Lord, quicken the smoldering embers by thine almighty breath. Russell Kelso Carter was an old preacher and he wrote a wonderful hymn that's in our hymn book, Breathe Upon Us, Lord from Heaven. Fill us with the Holy Ghost. Promise of the Father given, send us now a Pentecost. Old John Wesley used to say, and it's well known, whenever a man's got the fire of God in his soul, people will come out to watch him burn. And oh, we need the fire of God once again. I remember a preacher in our denomination years ago telling a story about a, a small parish church in the, the Midlands in England. And one night that parish church caught fire and 
Don't know what the reason for the fire was, but during the night watches, all of a sudden the sirens were heard and the, the church in the center of the village was on fire and people come out to lend a hand. And one of the local infidels, this atheist come out, he had no interest in church at all, but he come out and one of the elders who was standing trying to put out the fire asked him to lend a hand. He says, it's not like, like not a, a thing that we've seen before to see you standing outside our church. And he says, this is the first time I've ever seen your church on fire. He knew that the church ought to be on fire. This was the first time he'd seen it. It was in a physical sense, but he'd never seen it before in a spiritual sense. Is the world outside wondering, why is the church not on fire? I remember speaking to a man in cool rain and he he, he didn't really believe in hell. He, he took his place once as a Christian, as a young man. He'd got away from the things of God. And he, he said, you know, if I really believed what you believed, and if I really believed that there was a hell, and if I really believed that there was a, a day of judgment, and all the things that you talk about, he says, I would never be off my knees. He said, I couldn't live. I couldn't live to think that my family are going to a lost eternity. And that really challenged my heart. We often talk about hell and we talk about judgment. But that we really know the fire of God in our souls. John the Baptist was a man with a soul and fire for God. He had the reality of the practice of separation in his life. The reality of the power of the Spirit in his life. And then also the reality of a passion for souls in his life. Again, Luke chapter 1. Having been told that he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Verses 16 and 17. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. The disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John was chosen of God to be a great soul winner. And in his nation, in his city, in his locality, he turned many of the children of Israel under God. He turned them to the Lord. And their religion came alive within their hearts and they realized that the Messiah was coming. And many repented of their sins and were baptized in Jordan. And John was a great soul winner. I can't imagine a greater privilege or calling under God than to be a soul winner. What must it be like to point many souls to Jesus Christ. To pray many souls into the kingdom. To weep o'er the erring one. And to lift up the fallen. And to tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. The Bible says he that winneth souls is wise. Now that does not mean that you have to be of a great intellect to be a soul winner. It really means it's a wise thing. It's the right thing. It's a good thing. It's a sensible thing. It's a wise thing. To seek to win souls to Jesus Christ. W.P. Nicholson, who 100 years ago, 1922, was so mightily used of God here in Ulster, in the Coleraine area, in the Lisburn area, in the Ballymena area, in the Garva area, right across the city of Belfast, down towards Bangor, right down from the north, right down the, the eastern coast of this province. Great crusades, multitudes converted. W.P. Nicholson said, Oh, that we would rather not live than to live and not see souls won to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a, an amazing statement? Oh, that we would rather not live than to live and not see souls won for Jesus Christ. 
You know, it's one of the things that I lament in my life, the barrenness of this heart and the fruitlessness and the barrenness of this ministry for which someday I will give an account. We've often talked in the years in Coleraine about the life and ministry of Duncan Campbell, great man of God, so used of God and the lowlands of Scotland, the Scottish lowlands there and the southern highlands and across on the Isle of Skye and number of months or perhaps a few years before going to the Isles of Harris and Lewis, he was sitting in his study preparing for a convention. He'd somewhat become proud that he had been invited to speak at all of these conventions across Britain. He'd lost the fire in his soul. And he was even flirting with liberals and liberal theology. And he just knew in his heart that he had lost something, but somehow he felt that nobody noticed. And then one day his teenage daughter came in, her name was Sheena, and she sat down in the in the study, and she says, Daddy, something's different. She says, Daddy, you've changed. You seem to have lost that fire and that glow. And all of a sudden, he felt he'd been caught on. And then she asked him a simple question that was to change his ministry from then until the moment that he went to be with the Savior. She says, Daddy, when was the last time you led a soul to Jesus Christ? When was the last time you led a soul to Jesus Christ? And I tell you, his heart was smitten. I remember our wee girl, Sarah, coming home from a meeting one night. It might have been uh, at a mission or a meeting like this. I'm not sure when it was. But I remember her coming home in the car. It was just the two of us in the car. And she just said from the back seat, she says, Daddy, why does nobody ever get saved? Why does nobody ever get saved? And I tell you, I went home and I thought about that. And there's a wee girl growing up, preaching the gospel week after week. And I felt so ashamed and so powerless and so wretched. Why does nobody ever get saved? I don't know if she meant, Daddy, why does nobody ever get saved under your ministry? Or how do people sit under the preaching of the gospel and they don't get saved? But she just recognized it. People are not getting converted. People are not coming to Christ. I know that we had a compassion and a burden for the lost. The person with a soul on fire for God will have a passion for souls. J.C. Ryle, the old Bishop of Liverpool, he said, a man's religion may well be suspected whenever he is content to go to heaven alone. What a statement. A man's religion may well be suspected when he is content to go to heaven alone. See, it Spurgeon took it even further and he said this, he said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Friends, tonight have we a burden for the lost. What about our families? What about our loved ones? What about our friends and what about our neighbors? What do we do to reach them? What do we do to win them? It's important to pray for them. Of course it is. It's absolutely vital to pray for people, to pray that the Spirit of God will speak to them. And it's very important as well to live our lives before them and to be honorable and upright and decent and have integrity and be respectful and respectable and to have their confidence that we're genuine and we're sincere. But dear friends, it's so important as well to speak to people, to tell them about the Savior, the Bible says, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without 
a preacher. William Booth said, rather than send his cadets to Bible college for two or three years, he said, I would love to be able to send them to hell for five minutes. That would change everything. Rather than send them to Bible college for two or three years, I would send them to hell for five minutes. Mr. Ravenhill said, hell is burning while the church is sleeping. If hell is on fire, why is the church of Jesus Christ not? Where is the fire? John had a soul on fire for God. He had the reality of the practice of separation in his life, the reality of the power of the Spirit in his life, the reality of a passion for souls in his life. And then, maybe even more importantly than everything that's gone on before, the reality of the promotion of the Savior in his life. It seems that this man is living with one purpose, one value in view, and that's to point people to the Savior, to uplift and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about John's ministry. It's not about his particular tribe that he comes from. It's not about the particular synagogue that he would be taken to on a Sunday by Zachariah, or on a, on a Sabbath by Zacharias and Elizabeth. John's sole concern was to promote and to uplift the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his sole purpose in life, to point people to the Savior, to prepare the way for the Lord. There cometh one after me who is mightier than I. People even ask him, are you the Messiah? Art thou the Christ? John not for one moment thought to rob God or Christ of any glory. And he confessed that he wasn't. And he says, whenever the Christ comes, he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and to unlatch his shoes. And he came to prepare the way for the Lord. And then as soon as the Son of God came to be baptized in the Jordan, John the Baptist stepped back. And he pointed all of the attention away from himself when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And John was willing to step into obscurity so that Jesus Christ may be seen. That was his sole purpose in life. He wasn't a stumbling block, but rather he was a signpost. You know, whenever Zacchaeus wanted to see the Lord that day in Jericho, the Bible says he was little of stature. And he sought to see the Lord who he was, but could not for the press. The people that thronged around the Lord and followed the Lord, rather than being like John the Baptist and promoting the Savior, they were in fact obscuring the Savior from the people who needed him most. And so it was whenever the men who had their friends sick of the palsy, they heard that it was noised abroad, the Lord was in the house, and the power of God was present to heal. They couldn't get in for the press. And I think there's application there as well. There are many that can't seem to get in on the Lord, sometimes because those who throng around them don't seem to be like John the Baptist and make a way for others to get in on the Lord and to see the Lord as he really is. But John the Baptist stood to one side. He was a burning and a shining light. And he shone all of that light upon the Savior. A burning and a shining light with a soul on fire for God. His preaching was all about Christ. That's what it was all about. Preaching Christ, promoting Christ, praising Christ, presenting Christ. The person with a soul on fire for God will not want to promote themselves but will want to promote the Christ of the cross and also promote the cross 
of Christ. Whenever Paul went to the city at Corinth and he came back and he wrote them a letter, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the second verse, and I think it's such a, such a wonderful verse. Verse 1, he says, I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the mystery of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, I determined, before I got to the city of Corinth, I made that resolve, and I had to work at it, I had to struggle at it, it didn't maybe come easy, but I was determined not to get diverted, not to get sidetracked. All I wanted was to preach Christ on the cross, to preach the gospel. And I had that determination in my heart that with all of the pressures of a, a cosmopolitan city like Corinth, not to get carried away on all of these side avenues, but to keep my focus on the gospel and to preach Christ. Because that's the message that that city needed. Paul could have so easily gone down all of these rabbit holes and get carried away and sidetracked and diverted. And I feel, friends, that so often we do. Christians on social media tearing stripes off each other and lumps off each other before a world that's watching on, splitting hairs over secondary issues and sometimes issues that aren't even secondary and putting all of their dirty linen out in public. The Apostle Paul says, all I want to the unsaved to know about my life is that I'm about Jesus Christ. I must be about the king's business. Friends, there's a world out there that needs Christ. They don't need our opinions. They don't need our political viewpoints. They don't need to know what our pet subjects are. They don't need to know what our likes and dislikes are. They need to know about our Savior. And John the Baptist had a soul on fire for God, and the reality of that is seen in of the promotion of the Savior in his life. We have one job on this earth, and that's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to uplift his Son, Tell people about the Savior, to walk with Him, to enjoy Him, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and just to live lives that are glorifying to Christ. Jeremiah, as many Christians do, many believers do, got very, very discouraged at one occasion in his ministry. And he said in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse number 7, whenever the world looked on and they scoffed and they mocked and they laughed at Jeremiah because he was upholding truth and righteousness and seeking to warn the people and call them back to God and, and get them to forsake all of the things that don't really matter in life. And he, he says in Jeremiah 27, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me, for since I speak, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me in the derision. And Jeremiah, believe it or not, gets to the stage where he's ready to throw the towel in. He's ready to just keep silence and no longer talk about the Lord or open the Bible or be a prophet anymore. He says, then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shot up in my bones and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He had a fire in his heart, a fire in his soul 
the truth of the word of God. These people, they mock, they scoff, but they still need to hear. And it may be that there will be those who will listen, but whether they listen or not, God has called me to preach his word and to tell others about him. Like the two on the road to Emmaus. You remember how they were discouraged as well and downcast? Depression and discouragement are occupational hazards for Christians. And they were discouraged. The Son of God had been crucified. His body was no longer in the cross. The tomb was empty. They didn't know what was happening. They thought somebody had taken the Lord away and disposed of his body. And they had all these hopes and dreams that there would be great times ahead. And they were discouraged. And then the Savior himself drew near and went with them. What a beautiful verse. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And it took them even a while for them to recognize that. And this might just be like a, a run-of-the-mill meeting here this evening. And you have come along just out of duty or out of habit or just to support the meetings, it's just to fill a pew. And nevertheless, you're here, but all of a sudden you're conscious. The Lord is here. I'm discouraged, I'm downcast. But you know, the Lord is drawn near. He's got a word for me. And God's speaking to your heart tonight, encouraging you and he opened the scriptures to them. And beginning at Moses and at all the prophets, what did he do? He spoke unto them the things concerning himself. You see, Paul was all about preaching Christ. John is all about preaching Christ. The Holy Spirit is all about uplifting Christ. And now the Son of God himself speaks to them the things concerning himself. And what was their response? Did not our hearts burn within us? as he spoke to us by the way. There's nothing that will stir your heart and soul as much as getting alone with God, having the Savior draw alongside, walk with you and comfort you. And as you open the Scriptures, you see Christ in the Scriptures and the Lord speaking to you. I tell you, we need to get into the Word of God in these days and get fuel for our souls. One last thing about John the Baptist, one last reality in his life, the reality of the practice of separation the reality of the power of the Spirit, the reality of a passion for souls, the reality of the promotion of the Savior. One last reality, the reality of the principle of surrender. John chapter 3 and verse number 30. Jesus Christ has appeared and John the Baptist declares as the Savior's gaining popularity, he says in John 3 verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. More of Christ, less of John. He must increase and I must decrease. All thoughts of myself, all desires for myself, all self-will, self-seeking, self-sufficiency, all of those things need to decrease more and more and more. And my life needs to magnify him more and more and more. John had no thought of himself. He was content to go to prison for the Savior. He did not promote his name. He did not promote his ministry. He didn't set up some ministry, John the Baptist ministries, and a big flashing sign in the wilderness. All John wanted was for his Savior to be exalted, magnified, uplifted, glorified. And John realizes for that to happen, I need to get smaller and be bent low and get just to that place where it's not about me, but it's all about him. He was absolutely surrendered 
to the will of God for his life. Not self-willed, not self-seeking, not self-serving, not self-sufficient, but absolutely surrendered. You know, about two and a half years ago, whenever all of the COVID things started, many believers, we were talking about how this hopefully will turn people to God. Dear friends, I don't think it's done anything of the sort, sadly. And sadly, even amongst the church, I think so many now are thinking, well, we need to just live our lives and enjoy ourselves and live for self in case there's lockdowns in the future. And it just seems to have bred a a spirit of self-will and self-seeking. That wasn't the spirit and heart of John the Baptist. His desire was that Christ must increase. Oh, that more of him would be seen in me. It's not about me, it's all about him. William Borden of Yale was a very wealthy young man. He was a millionaire by the time he was in his teens. After he graduated from high school with flying colors, his parents sent him on a chaperone trip around the world and he was taken from his home in Chicago and he went around the world and was coming back from the east and met a lot of Muslim people there and people steeped in idolatry and his heart went out to them. The night that he was converted, he wrote in his Bible the words, no retreats. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. And then he felt the call of God as he listened to some of those great preachers, call of God to full-time service and he he wrote down the words, no reserves. Whenever he got converted, he said, no retreats. I'm not going back. And then he felt the call of God to surrender his life to go to the mission field. And he wrote down the word, no reserves. I'm holding nothing back. People said he was throwing his life away. He's a fool. You know, you've got intellect, you've got ability, you've got money, you've got influence. You've graduated now from Princeton and Yale. You've got the world at your feet but I must go, the call of God's in my life. And he went to Egypt to study Islamic culture and the language. And whenever he was there, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And within a few months, that young man in his mid-twenties was dead. Never got to the mission field. And the story's told that they found his Bible and just after he was contracted with that awful illness, he wrote down just two more words. No regrets. No retreats. No reserves, no regrets. He must increase, I must decrease. Him writer said, fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only, Christ always living in me. What about a life of surrender? Are our lives upon the altar? Are we sold out for Jesus Christ? Can we say like Amy Carmichael who Spent many years, 55 years, I think, in the mission field without furlough. She wrote these words. With these words, I close. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God, a burning and a shining light, a soul on fire for God. Let's just pray together. Uh, I'm not sure, is there another hymn or anything, Stephen? That's meaning's over, okay. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Your attention has been really, really encouraging. Let's pray together and pray that the Lord will ignite our hearts and use us in some way for his glory in these closing days of time. Father, we thank thee tonight for the life and ministry of John the Baptist.
So much, Lord, that we can learn from the brief life of this man, sold out for the Lord, just a few months to serve thee, and then died as a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. Lord, he was a burning and a shining light. And Lord, we pray that our lives might be touched by the fire of God, that Lord, you'll make us to be instruments in thy hand. Lord, thank thee tonight for these dear people. Thank you, Lord, for all who have come, and maybe others that are watching online or others that will listen in at a later time. We pray that the word of God will grip our hearts and that we might be fully separated unto the Lord, filled with the spirit of the living God, a passion for souls, lives that uplift the Savior, lives of surrender. So, Lord, we thank thee for your presence with us and for the meetings that have gone already. And we pray, O God, for these people here, for some that have got great needs, Lord, and we pray that you'll bless every individual and grant, O God, that in the days that lie ahead, even this Lord's day, that the Spirit of God will come down in great power and that souls will come to know the Savior. Hear and answer prayer and part us with thy fear, with thy favor and with thy blessing. We humbly pray in Jesus' name.